Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have helped them become more real to us because we believe that helps us draw more power out of them, and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so happy to have uh, with me today a colleague and friend, Patrick Mason. Well, welcome, Patrick. Hey, Kerry. It is really good to be here. Thank you. Uh, we're glad to have you with us. We have so many wonderful things we're doing to try and get word out to everybody and, and give everyone great opportunities. So we're going to do a live Isaiah broadcast uh, where we'll talk about keys to understanding Isaiah and answer questions. That's going to be on Tuesday, February 20th. As we're getting into all of these Isaiah chapters, I want to remind you of my book, Learning to Love Isaiah which has Book of Mormon highlights in it, an index that helps you see every time uh, the Book of Mormon talks about Isaiah, where you can go to learn about it. I think it will really help you get more out of your study of the Book of Mormon and Isaiah. Isaiah is like the fourth largest book in the Book of Mormon. It's incredible how much Isaiah there is in there. And this book will help you, and it's on sale right now at SiegelBook.com. You can get, I think it's 20% off. So go to SiegelBook.com and get Learning to Love Isaiah. It will really enhance your Book of Mormon study. On Friday the 23rd and the and Saturday the 24th, we're going to have a Book of Mormon workshop where we'll go over some of the Isaiah things and and uh, Nephi's commentary on that and Jacob's teachings about the scattering and gathering of Israel and just that topic in the Book of Mormon in general. And also King Benjamin, we are going to have a workshop in Missouri with Alex Baugh, who knows more about Missouri church history than anyone in the world. And that's going to be uh, April 4th through the 7th. So we'll incorporate general conference into that. And then uh, we're going to have a church history tour that will be uh, taking place March or May 27th through June 5th. You can learn about all of these at SAR. So that's tsar.website. Well, let me let me tell our audience just a little bit about Patrick, and then we'll ask him to tell us more about himself. Uh, Patrick, he, he got a degree in history at BYU, but then it looks like three degrees at uh, Notre Dame in international peace studies and history and so on. His PhD there from Notre Dame. But really, Patrick specializes in uh, what the L the non-LDS world would call Mormon studies. And uh, he is now actually the, the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. Uh, he's he's uh, written or edited lots of books, and, and uh, I've heard him do interviews um, from uh, people who are outside media sources that are interested in what in the world is going on with something going on with the, the Latter-day Saints. Uh, he and I have been together on some uh, TV shows. And I think if I remember correctly, we first met like maybe 2007 or eight or something in Cairo. In I Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember why you were in Cairo, uh, but uh, I, you'll, that was, you'll that was my me. first job. Actually, I was teaching at the American University in Cairo. So we lived there for a oh, couple of years. Right. Ah, I love the AUC. I do stuff with them. So yeah, that, that's great. Fantastic. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself, if you would, Patrick. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a full-time professor here at Utah State University, and I teach courses in uh, what we call Mormon history uh, and history of Christianity. I'm really interested in religion, violence, and peace. We, we've got a new peace institute here that I'm really involved with. Uh, and so so that's, that's what I, occupies a lot of my uh, day job. And uh, then over the last uh, few years, I've also written a couple of books for more for church audiences. And, and so that's been really enjoyable uh, to get out and do a lot of firesides and speak with a lot of people kind of as as one saint to, to other saints. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, 
um, just feel really lucky. I'm married, have four kids, and and we love living here in Logan. It's a good place for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's a beautiful place. So, yeah. yeah, it is. And, and you've been the host uh, or one of the, the kind of like uh, scholar hosts, uh, co-hosts on uh, Follow Him for a number of years now, right? Or, yeah, come follow up. Uh, Sorry, yeah, yeah, come follow yeah. up. Sorry, there's, yes. There's too many of these. Uh, we're all trying yeah. to follow Jesus, right? And yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. only so many titles. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, the, the the BOU TV show, Come Follow Up. Uh, yeah, I've been doing that for a few years uh, and, and really like it, actually. I've ended up liking it even more than, than I thought I would. Yeah, it's a fun bunch there. Yeah. Uh, so although they... They always tell me I show up with uh, clothes that uh, I think they'll want me to wear. They never let me wear my own clothes. They don't think I look. Uh, no, they don't, don't let me either. Clothes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're like, it's, you don't dress It's the well. running joke with the wardrobe uh, <laughs> yeah. person that I, 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 at this point, I've basically just quit trying. Yeah, me too. So. Me too. I did the last <laughs> time I came in shorts and a t-shirt and I said, I know you won't like anything I bring. So just give me whatever <laughs> right. you want me to do. So anyway, yeah. Oh, uh, well, uh, well, that's neither here nor there. What we're here to talk about are the scriptures and in particular today, uh, we want to talk about uh, Nephi's psalm, it's often called, or 2 Nephi chapter 4. And uh, one of the things that I'm excited about, we're, we're having two episodes on that this week, and I think our audience will see that there's so many different ways, it's so rich and deep, there's so many different ways you can approach this, and things you can draw out of it that I could have on, I think, 10 guests, and we do 10 different kinds of podcasts. Uh, but I know you've been writing and thinking about this for a while. I think you've just published an article on this, so I'll let you yeah. tell us about that a little bit. So why don't you tell us about the article, and then just take us where wherever you'd like to go in this. Yeah, so so thanks, Kerry. So yeah, I just published a, an article in um, uh, in one of the 2023 issues of BOU Studies, uh, and the article is called "The Psalm of Nephi in an Age of Anxiety." Hmm. And uh, I was really struck. Uh, it, this actually originated a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the it's kind of an interesting backstory. We have a master's program here in choral conducting, uh, actually under the directorship of Craig Jessup, the former oh, yeah. uh, conductor of the the what was then the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and um and so one of the students uh, from that program came and approached me and, and he said. Uh, he, he's he's also a, a really fabulous tenor in in addition to to being a conductor and he said you know there there there's these musical pieces that i really love um that are that are set to uh the psalm of nephi from second nephi 4 uh, uh and i'd love to perform it but i also know you know you're kind of you you do this you know uh stuff on uh mormon studies and and so so we kind of cooked up the idea of doing what we call a lecture recital uh, so we did this this event where I gave a, a kind of a brief lecture about the text, uh, and then and then he sang these pieces, and then we also had the Logan Institute Choir uh, sing as well. Uh, in, oh, that in fact, would be one so of the cool. Pieces, one of the pieces by John Tanner, actually. Uh, oh, so, nice. So in uh, talking with John about it. Um, and so it was this really beautiful event that actually appealed to the, to the broader campus community. Part of my um, uh, what I wanted to do was to try to introduce the Book of Mormon to a broader audience um, to see it. Of course, it's it's a sacred uh, text for Latter-day Saints, but just like the Bible or the Quran or, or any other kind of world religious scripture, that there are passages in it, there are parts of it that are accessible and can be beautiful and can be useful to anybody regardless of, of their religious persuasion, just like the Psalms uh, right. or, or or lots of other things. And so they, they so speak tried... to our basic humanity, really. Exactly. Just what it means yeah. to be human. I mean, I, ultimately, I think that's what religion is all about, right, is, is it speaks to the predicament of, of being human. 
And so, yeah, so I, I did that. And um, as I was doing that, I was, I was kind of really struck by, by some of the themes in the Psalm of Nephi that I think speak very much to a 21st century readership, maybe even more than, than to the, the Book of Mormon's original 19th century readership. Yeah, and the Book of Mormon would tell us that we should expect that a little bit. So, yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Well, well, wonderful. Well, I hope we touch on that at least a little bit as we go through. But why don't we go through and uh, and talk about what you know how this has become real and powerful for you and what you've noticed in the Psalm and and let's just uh, go. Yeah, well, I'm I'm just struck. Um, uh, so so I've I've been reading recently from from Grant Hardy's uh, edition of uh, study edition of the Book of Mormon uh, that he published with Oxford University Press last year and 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 I love what Grant says about uh, the uh, about the, the Second Nephi. Uh, he's, he's, you know, it's so striking in second Nephi that almost all narrative drops out. Right. I mean, we have all yeah. of these stories from first Nephi and, and then in second Nephi, it's almost all sermons and prophecies and, and recapitulated and, and reinterpreted texts from Isaiah, um, and almost no narrative. Yeah. And, and, and what Grant, Grant has this great line, uh, he's, he's sort of uh, uh, paraphrasing Virginia Woolf, what she said about uh, Middlemarch, the novel. And he said, Second Nephi is scripture for grownups. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so we don't have the great stories like we do. In, you know, all kids, we teach all these these stories to primary kids from First Nephi, right? These yeah. very memorable stories. I'll build Second a Nephi boat. Just, the, 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 yeah. the, the boat, the plates, the, yeah. you know, the the fighting with the brothers, right? All, yeah. all those kinds of things. Um. And and we just don't have that in Second Nephi, except that the one piece of narrative we have comes in Second Nephi five when finally the family right. broke, breaks up, right? Yep. And and so this psalm um, is inserted there. Um, it, it 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 for for me at least just textually it kind of comes out of nowhere, right? Yeah. Be, because he's 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 citing Lehi's prophecies at first to his children. Um, and uh and and then and then Lehi dies and then that's in the first part of chapter four and then in chapter five the family breaks up right and mm. and and we, we get all of that and this psalm just kind of like drops right yeah. in the middle of of this and of course we know Nephi is writing decades later 30 40 years later and so like I'm just always interested like what is he doing as a narrator what is he doing as he's editing you know, uh, this and, and preparing this record many years later, very intentionally. Yeah. Um, why does this psalm drop right here where it does? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, let me just—I mean, we can explore maybe what yeah. what we think about why. But I also want to say that it strikes me as, as you talk about the intentionality of uh, the first and second Nephi. I, I think that's absolutely correct. Nephi has planned out themes and what he's going to say and how he's going to say it and how he's going to do it. And this is the one chapter that I think is just, I've got some few things I'm feeling and thinking and going yeah. through and I'm just putting it out there, right? I think this is as raw Nephi as you get. This is the unplanned, unscripted un, uh, Nephi where he just is feeling some things, I think, because of what the the emotions that come to him again as he thinks about the death of his father and the falling apart of his family but it brings those emotions up and then nephi pours it onto the plates right and and it's it's beautiful this is not the i i think through inspiration he does it and it does fit in intentionally with the theme but this is not the intentional chapter this is the spontaneous yeah. chapter 
I, I think that's exactly right. I, I think it uh, for me and just the way it reads again, the way it's situated textually, it just kind of like comes out of it. Yeah. <laughs> right uh, now it, it's beautifully composed. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, it's not just like word vomit. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, so it's, so whether he, you know, what, whether he'd compose this over time and then put it in the record or something, but, but clearly there's this like uh, strong emotional valence yeah. uh, that, that, that comes with this. And, and you're right. We don't, we don't get this um, any other place from Nephi. Frankly, we don't get this very much from other Book of Mormon authors in terms of a, a, a view into their interior life. Yeah, um, their interior psychology, and that's that actually is really what struck me as as I read it, and that's why I wrote this this article, the Psalm of Nephi in an Age of Anxiety, because that's what we're interested in as readers in the 21st century. Right. Yeah. When when we read novels, when we read books, we're interested in the characters' interior lives. Like what motivated them to do this? What what from their childhood, you know, led led them yeah. to 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 do this thing? Or or what what is it about their relationships with other people that 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 really gets them going? And and it's this kind of interiority and 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 the 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 strong emotional character of these verses that I think make them so powerful to make them resonate. And so in this article, I, I won't bore you with all the details, but but it's interesting that nobody talked about this passage in the 19th century. Nobody. Huh. So so I went back through like the indexes and concordances, and and you can see like the passages they cite and what the the important themes right. and all of the indices and concordances and commentaries that were written throughout the 19th and early 20th century, nobody mentions these passages at all, the Psalm of Nephi. It's like it doesn't exist. Wow. They jump straight in the narrative from Lehi dying to then the family breaking up in chapter five. Huh. And the first scholar to really do anything with it, to mention it, is Sidney Sperry in 1947 in his commentary on the Book of Mormon. So that's middle of the 20th century, more than a century after the Book of Mormon has been published. And then since then... There's only one reference to to the Psalm of Nephi in all of 19th century general conferences. One reference, wow. Wow. and then starting in the 1940s, it just rockets up, and now it's it's cited all the time, not only in general conference but in the Liahona, in the church magazines. People have put it to music, all these yeah. kinds of things. So this is a text that that seems to have like not resonated at all with 19th century readers, but totally resonates with late 20th and early 21st century readers. Yeah. And I think it's because we're more tuned in as a culture with the rise of therapeutic culture, with the rise of a, a kind of being in touch with our feelings, our own interior lives, right. discussing the, the difficult emotions that we sometimes have. I think this is like this part of Nephi we can relate to in, yeah. in a way that, that that maybe earlier readers had a harder time with. I, I agree. I agree. And and that relating, you know, there, it's also become a really big part of our culture to want to know that kind of inside view of somebody like, yeah. uh, you know, uh, and sometimes in a healthy way, sometimes not. Right. Like we sure. have paparazzi and, and whatever else <laughs> the inquiring yeah. minds want to know and so on. But uh, but there is really something to that. And, and one of the reasons I think that we call this the, the Psalm of Nephi is because it is so similar both to the way that we get Psalms like David's Psalms written but also to the way it helps us see Nephi like David's Psalms do. So if you think of David, here's a guy, if you just have the first and second Samuel account, I mean, he does go through some tough things and you can see some sorrow in there, but mostly you see this guy who is an amazing warrior and then an amazing king and just uh, a really put together guy. 
right? And, and seems to really be put together even when he's being persecuted and so on. And then you read his Psalms and you realize, man, that was tough for him. He was struggling. There were a lot of hard things, a lot of heartfelt sorrow and a lot of turning to God and relying on God. And you just see David in a whole different way. And Nephi is another guy that if you just read the narrative, this is one put together guy, right? Yeah. His brothers beat him and he's fine. He's just going to preach to him while they're beating him. He's going to preach to him while they're tying him up. He's going to preach to him while they're ready to throw him overboard and whatever else, right? Uh, he's just all fine all the time. Strong, tough Nephi, right? The, the kind of guy you see in the Arnold Freeberg pictures, right? Yeah. They could probably bench press the whole boat and so on. But, uh, but you read this and you're like, oh, this stuff was hard for Nephi. Um, and uh, that's that's helpful for us because one of the things I think we struggle with is we see everybody else seeming put together and we know our own motives and our own struggles and we think there's something wrong with us. Whereas if we all wrote our own Psalms, we'd see we're all alike. And it's helpful to say, if Nephi can have these feelings, it's all right for me. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and I think that's what makes this so relatable. I mean, I, I know... Um, you know, Nephi is such a heroic figure in First Nephi one, or, yeah. or in First Nephi, right? The book of First Nephi, and um, that's the Nephi that inspires the youth, inspires adults, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I will go and do, and and all that kind of stuff, uh, and 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 it is, it's it's genuinely inspiring. It's it's incredible faith, courage, obedience, yeah. uh, all of those kinds of things, and that but, really is Nephi, uh, yeah, uh, right? It really is him, but yeah, exactly. That, that's all real. Yeah. Um, but right. The, the, the story is more complicated and, and not everybody can relate, relate to that Nephi. Not everybody yeah. feels like the, I will go and do right. Well, no, nobody does not even Nephi. Right. <laughs> right. This is where you get the glimpse of Nephi. So it reminds yeah. me of this, this great line. I'm kind of a, a Cary Grant fan. And, uh, uh, there was an interview with Cary Grant once where, uh, you know, he's got this smooth, suave uh, kind of exterior and, and someone's interviewing. He says, everybody wants to be Cary Grant. In fact, I want to be Cary Grant, but I'm not. <laughs> right. And, and it's yeah. this, that idea that like none of us are really what we you can see from the outside. Even Nephi wasn't all uh, only that. Right. Yeah. And so here we see we we do get the glimpse into to to that and 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 that's why I think what makes him so relatable and and again in in a in an age and we'll we'll dive into this, some of the passages be here but but somebody who's wrestling with his emotions somebody who's wrestling with his relationships somebody for whom like maybe what he expected life was going to be like it life didn't turn out exactly yeah. like that right unfulfilled yeah. expectations or frustrated expectations like that is you know. It's as, as I say in the article, like this is a Nephi, Nephi who needs a therapist or at least a really good bishop, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that's that's a Nephi that a lot of us can can relate to. Yeah, I mean, like I have desires to be the I will go and do guy, but life is life is complicated, life is tough, and it's not just always black and white. I think also what we see here is Nephi taking some accountability for his role in the family conflict as well. And yeah. so this, again, this is a grown-up Nephi. This is a mature Nephi who's looking back with sorrow, with accountability, but also with fundamentally the bedrock of this is a kind of trust in God. Um, but it's, th th this, this, is a, this is a middle-aged Nephi. This is not the, the teenage Nephi. Yeah, very good. Very good. And I'd say, like, you get one little glimpse of that, I think, uh, earlier in first Nephi. And it's when he's finished his vision 
And uh, he says he, he supposes himself to, I can't remember the exact phrasing, I should look it up, but ba basically he says uh, to have greater affliction than anyone because he's seen what's going to happen to his people. Yeah. Right? And you get the idea that there was sorrow over over seeing what happens. And I imagine it was it was striking for him because he's left and he's got this promise, you know, you're going to prosper, I'm with you and all those things. And and you would think that means, okay, everything's going to be great. And he sees in vision, it, it doesn't always stay great. There are hard things all along and my descendants get destroyed because they're wicked. And and I think that's probably a little bit mind and bubble bursting for him. And so you get a little glimpse of it. But as you said here, you get this this kind of mature rumination on the, the sorrow and the care for his people. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, do you want to dive into some of the Let's verses? Let's do it. Yeah. 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 So, so the psalm is... Um, People debate somewhat where it, whether it starts in verse fifteen or verse sixteen. Um, I, don't, I don't think it matters all, yeah. all, all that much. Um, but uh, you know, it starts beautifully. My soul delighteth in the things of the Lord. My heart pondereth continually on the things which I've seen and heard. Partly, what we see here is like a recapitulation of some of Nephi's greatest hits. Right? He's he's yeah. like seen God. He's felt the love of God. He talks about the condescension of God. It's a callback to to First Nephi eleven. Um, so so. It's it's this is really interesting in terms of what as scholars we call intertextuality in terms of the way that the texts bounce off of each other and refer to one another, right. um, and I don't think we need to get into the weeds on all that. But but after this 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 really beautiful opening, um, not nevertheless in verse seventeen, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord and showing me His great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, "O wretched man that I am!" Right, and it's like. Yeah. Nephi, wretched man, this is not, again, this is, this is not what we equate. Um, yeah. Uh, my heart sorroweth, my soul, because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. Again, for the, the, the Nephi, first Nephi, there's not a lot of iniquities there. Yeah. Um, and so I'm encompassed about because of the temptations, the sins, which so do so easily beset me. Uh, my heart groaneth because of my sins. I mean, this this is like just you can just feel this heaviness. Yeah, yeah. And in, in fact, I mean that that part right before that. You know, when I desire to rejoice, my heart groans because of my sins. You get this idea that like he has joy, and and I think I, I didn't mention this before, but I I think it's it's not just the fact that he's writing about his father died and his his family uh, is about to fall apart in in his narrative that. Re evokes this, but he's also just written those incredible teachings from his father Lehi, yeah. And that that notion that with the joy comes the sorrow, and the sorrow the joy, right? And you see that acted out right there in that verse. I I, I rejoice, but I also sorrow, right? Well, and, and I see here like I when I desire to rejoice, and I again I bringing this back, I think to a modern context. I know so many people. I've I've felt it at times in my own life. When, when you deal with anxiety, when you deal with the depression, whether that's a chronic thing or just kind of a, a, a day um, where you want to feel good, right? You, yeah. you, 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 you want to want to, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's one thing to feel rejoicing. It's another thing to desire to rejoice. And, and here's this, like, even when I want to rejoice, when I desire to rejoice, like I'm still weighed down by this heaviness. And I think so many people can say, yeah, that's exactly 
what depression feels like. That's exactly what anxiety feels like. Even when I want to feel good, even when I remember what it was like to feel good, when I remember that God loves me, because he goes on to talk about how much God loves him, right? It's one thing to know that intellectually, right? And even to, to have a memory of it, but but sometimes just whatever, body chemistry or, or whatever yeah. it is, however we explain these kinds of things, it's it's sometimes hard to feel like what I've heard people with depression talk about, like just feeling like they're just under this wet, heavy wool blanket. Right. And, and no matter what's happening, no matter how much they want to, that feeling is still there. Yeah. 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 And so I, again, I, so, so that's why, you know, point people to, Hey, this is Nephi too. Right. Yeah. Ne yep. Nephi knew what that felt like. New Nephi knew what, it was like to want to rejoice, to 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 have these memories of God's love, uh, to 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 know of it, to have a testimony. I mean, at no point here is Nephi like thinking about throwing the whole thing away, right? right. At, at no point right. is Nephi walking away. He's just to me, this is just so human, of yeah. of what it's like to struggle. I agree, and and we can put it on another level. So I I, I think you're absolutely correct, and there's this huge. It's really a pandemic of anxiety and depression and, and similar things. And I don't really know any, including my own family, I don't know any families that don't have someone that they know and love that isn't struggling in some way with this, right? It's just, it's pandemic. But uh, but even if you take it uh, to a different level, for so for someone who maybe isn't uh, struggling necessarily with that, yeah. Uh, so, and I can just say from my own experience, like I'm a chronically happy person, uh, <laughs> a, a, a chronically probably unrealistic person. Uh, but even so, uh, and I think this wasn't true of me. It's like when I was maybe younger, Nephi, right? When, I, when it, things were, I was like, oh, so bad, too bad that other people are having problems, but everything's great for me. It always will be, right? <laughs> uh, but with a little more experience that now, uh, you know, I'll have times where I'm so happy for how happy things are for my family, right? So I'm like, oh, this is great. We're having a wonderful moment. But there's a part of me that at the same time knows, yeah, but some of my children still have some tough things they're trying to figure out and, yeah. and we're not through that yet. We're not over that, right? Or even I'll have moments of great joy for some, like if I've, I've done something that's helping a bunch of people and I'm so happy about that. And and still every now and then uh, as I'm feeling that joy, I remember, yeah, you know, I have harmed people when I didn't mean to. And, uh, and that, uh, you know, so it, it just kind of tinges it just a little bit. Doesn't mean I don't have lots of real joy. Uh, yep. I, I do, but uh, as as life goes on, as, as the you know life is, it, it, we're in a fallen world, and there's lots of heavy stuff. Uh, we will find that all sorrow can have an element of joy, but all joy can still have this you know element of our heart groaning. Right, and 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 if uh, uh, the. Uh... I think this is a beautiful part of our theology, but it's also a, sometimes a tough pill to swallow. This it's not just a human thing; it's it's a God thing too, yep. right? This is the God who weeps. This is this is the Jesus who sorrows um, uh, for for our sins, right? So so divine beings who are perfected, uh, in, immortal, you know, in terms of the resurrected Christ or or the Father. Um, but who still who are have the fullness of joy, right? That's that's what we're promised as well. Yeah. But but it's because of the suffering of others, uh, because of what they see in in the world, uh, it affects them. They're they're not impassive, right? To, no. to 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 be a Christian, to be a you know a fully connected human, is to be aware of and plugged into the suffering of the world, even if it's not yours. 
That's absolutely right. And that's going again to that second Nephi teaching, right? I mean, I, I think it is our theology that if we are going to be capable uh, of and experience fantastic joy, the other end of the stick comes with that, uh, right? There, there will be amazing sorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and, and, uh, one of the things I, I like here, again, showing the maturity of, of Nephi here, um, and you'll be able to say far more about this than I will, but there's different kinds of Psalms, uh, and scholars have identified this as a Psalm of lament, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to one of the other kinds of Psalm is an imprecatory Psalm, right? Which, which, which is just the fancy word for, for when David's really mad, right. And, and calling down judgment on, on his enemies. And there's a handful of Psalms with some, some pretty, uh, uh, shall we say graphic language. Uh, and, and that's, um, you know, here Nephi doesn't get into that, right? He, um, he, we, we've seen moments of that. He could have gone that direction, right? He could yeah. have been consumed by that kind of anger and and simply wanted God to rain down destruction uh, on on uh, his quote unquote enemies, uh, which which I think here, it, you know, in, especially in this context, he's talking about his brothers. That's exactly um, right. And uh, but he doesn't. This is a psalm of lament for the conflict. It's a lament for, I think, his role in the conflict. I think there's a kind of maturity here that that, that says, "Why am I angry uh, because of these things? Right? What what yeah. have, what have I done? How have I contributed to this?" But he's not asking God to destroy Laman Lamel. Actually, when he gets to that point, he says, "Will you, you know? Will you remove the obstacles from before me?" Right? He still wants protection. He wants preservation. We know his brothers are going to try to kill him yet again. Um, but but he's not saying, "God, rain down fire and brimstone." God, will you protect me? Those are two very different impulses. And yep. Nephi's impulse here is, is I, I think, the more generous and loving one, even while recognizing, again, he knows writing this, that things didn't work out. He knows there was no reconciliation in the family. He knows the family is more divided than it's ever been. Yeah. But, in fact, he's but, seen the future that they exactly. are going to be warring against each other for forever, basically, yeah. well, for a thousand years. Yeah. Yeah. And and so so I see it as a sign of, of real spiritual maturity. It's so easy to want revenge yeah. on our enemies. It's so easy to want God to, to punish others. Um, or even a level uh, down from that. I, I think At a least far to more say it's Christian and spiritually healthy thing to to say no. Simply, I want protection, but but it's still it's it's I'm I'm sorry for for where we're at right now. Yeah, a- amen. Right, and and he really could just even go a level down from that. Right, you could he could very justifiably at least say this terrible situation is Laman and Lemuel's fault, and in many ways it is. Right, and he he could. Uh, at least say negative things about them, but there's not a hint of it in there. This is yeah. all about Nephi and his his relationship with God and his path towards godliness and the difficulties he's having in becoming more godly because of the way he reacts to very, very difficult circumstances. And they are. I mean, I think if your family were trying to kill you, we would count that as difficult circumstances. Yeah. But uh, he... There's there's not a hint of of anger against them. This is all about him and God. Yeah, I mean, in fact, he says maybe we can skip to to verse twenty seven here. Um, 
why should I yield to sin because of my flesh? Again, I think this is a nice little uh, sidebar. Prophets aren't perfect, right? Uh, yeah. uh, uh, I even prophets uh, yield to sin just because they're human. Uh, why should I give way to temptations? That the evil one have place in my heart to destroy my peace and afflict my soul. Um, again, sometimes um, our peace is destroyed by somebody else. Right, the the, yeah. the you know the That's most righteous, real. loving person. Uh, sometimes our peace can be destroyed by other people, and and um, and and we just have to to to, to recognize that, right? Saintliness is is no guarantee of of comfort. Um, yeah. but then he goes on to say, and, I, uh, and this is so key: Why am I angry because of mine enemy? Uh, some people have uh have have thought that maybe he's thinking back to to Laban uh here mm. um I think that's an interesting argument I I don't think so I I think especially yeah. given the place in the narrative give, given the point at, at this point like Laban is long gone right yeah. um the only enemies here are are again the, it's it's these family relationships yeah. I think that's and, who and he's referring to Absolutely I mean that's on either side of this psalm right it's yeah. it's about his his brothers. I, it, to me, the context makes it very clear. And and I'll say this: I kind of hinted about it a little bit in the episode with John Tanner, but uh, it's, it's worth uh, exploring a little more here. This I, when he says, uh, "Why am I angry because of my enemy?" I think that's specifically given this verse. There may be other things, but that's the most prominent thing he's referring to when he says, "Why should I yield to to sin because of my flesh?" Right? And yep. and I just have to say. Nephi's on a different level than I currently am. Uh, if, if I had people, especially people I trusted and that I should be able to trust and that should help me that are trying to kill me, I wouldn't feel that bad about being angry right now. That's a, that's a confession on my part. Um, but I would, I would feel like, yeah, that makes sense that I'm angry that they're, and, and it would be a little bit if they're trying to kill me, but I, I am like maybe overprotective of my family. I don't know. But if I felt like these people are trying to kill my family, I would feel that overprotective urge and rush and I'd be upset and I wouldn't feel that bad about it. Right. But, but Nephi is in a different place in his approach to holiness where he's now saying, and he probably had times where he was righteously indignant and felt fully justified in that. I don't know. I'm putting, I'm making that up. Right. But I can guess well, he it. says so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. but, uh, but I think he's now at the point where it's like, yeah, I, I wish I were the kind of person who didn't even get angry when they were trying to kill me and my family. I would, I would like, I think that's, a, I think he's saying that's a weakness of the flesh and I don't want to have that weakness. Now I'm hoping I get to that point one day and it's all, it's okay that we're all in different places. We're all on a journey and, and that's fine. Wherever we are on the journey, just keep journeying. Right. But I hope to get to that point one day, but it's, it's really interesting to see Nephi, there and talking about it in that way. And, and I think it's an expression of his desire to be more godly. I clearly, and, and I think, um, immediately go to, especially in the context of what you're thinking about it. I mean, this is the sermon on the Mount, mm -hmm. right? Where, where Christ says, you know, of course you've been told, you know, thou shalt not kill. Um, but I say unto you, you know, the, yeah. the higher law is don't even be angry, yeah. uh, with, with other people. And, and, that's now, a tougher it, thing. It, it's a it's a it's an incredibly hard thing. And and now I I think some people could complicate that and say, whoa, wait a minute. Um, you know, Jesus got kind of mad uh at 
you know, he, he said some hard things against the Pharisees. You know, we, you could talk about the cleansing of the temple. We could point to lots of scriptures that, that talk about yeah. God's, you know, anger yeah. towards sin and, and towards other yep. things. So wait a minute, what what's going on here? And uh, I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on this. I, I think both in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and then also what I see here from Nephi, who's striving after this kind of holiness, is um, this isn't a kind of anger toward sin and its effects, right? It's 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 not uh, that th there is a way that um, I mean I'm I'm deeply angry at much of the the injustice that we see in the world. Like when people do yeah. horrific things, I mean, how, how can you not be angry at? I mean, just choose the obvious one, like the Holocaust or something like that, right? right. Okay. So, but but I think what Jesus is inviting us to, and what what Nephi is talking here, because here he's talking about relationships, right? Yeah. He's he's yep. he's not talking about he's not asking why am I angry because of horrible things that people do. He's saying why am I angry because of my enemy, and what and Jesus is also inviting us. This is about the relationships we have with other human beings. Are we angry towards them? And what anger does is it blinds us to somebody else's humanity. And so all we can see is the act. Right. All we can see is the thing that we've uh, that they've done. And so so they're they're no longer a human. They're an object. They are the thing that they've done rather than the person who did it. Exactly. And and I so I think what Jesus is inviting us to is to always remember that there's a there's a person on the other side. There's a child of God. On the other, and and what your anger does is it obscures that fact. Be angry at the horrible thing they did, right? God is angry at at sin, you know, the fruits of of sin, yeah, but the not at the people who do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And and in fact, maybe I'll just kind of push on, on a, a little further on one of those pieces because I I so much agree. And and, and these relationships, are, the the more I study the gospel, the more I understand relationships with God and others is is so key. Um, and, uh, you're right. We, we can objectify people and we talk about people being objectified, uh, sexually, and that's absolutely yeah. a problem, right? But we can objectify someone again, someone who is harming one of my children. It's easy for me to objectify them. Now I need to stop the harm to my children. Of course. Uh, right. And sometimes it's your children harming your children, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, you, you want to you don't want them to become objects, as you said. Right. And I think there's a, there's another element of this that he he seems to mention to me that that comes into play. I think I, again, we, we read this, but when he says, uh, why should I yield to sin because of my flesh? So let's think about this. Someone, uh, Laman and Lemuel, want to harm him, want to harm his parents, want to harm his family. Right. Our bodies are programmed to have an adrenaline rush. Yeah. Right. This is this is part of of uh, what keeps us safe, keeps us alive. So our bodies are programmed and your brain will naturally interpret that adrenaline rush that is designed to actually get you ready to protect a fight or flight if you need to. But our brains will interpret that as anger. That's natural. That's what happens. Right. The question is, what do you do then? We're not you're not doing something wrong when your body produces adrenaline. Right. That, right. That, that's that's not a sin. <laughs> The question is, what do you do then? Probably not even a transgression. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I, no, it's not. It's just, it's just the way our fallen bodies work, right? So the question is, what do you do with that fallen body? Your, your flesh, as he puts it, right? I think that's what he's saying. My fallen body. Um, do you give in to that? Do you act on that, or do you say, okay, I'm experiencing this feeling. 
why what's going on what's the real way i should react what's the real way i should feel right and it's it, that's the question is what do you do after that do you objectify the person and do you act out on that or do you say okay what's going on here what's their motive what's my motive how do i act in a way that makes this situation better that we could say peacemakers wanted right how do i yep. how do i try and make peace out of this still protect my family still whatever else but make peace out of this rather than act on the adrenaline rush and the brain interpretation that came with it that I just felt. Yeah. It reminds me. So some of my heroes are, are the people who were involved in the civil rights movement, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s. And one of the things that um, I think in the popular imagination, there's this sense like Martin Luther King went around, gave some speeches and then voila, you know, we, we had yeah. uh, civil rights, but, but in fact, uh, when you study the movement, um, they went through extensive training, uh, so oftentimes months of training, usually in church basements, uh, um, before they were allowed to go out and march or sit at calendars or do some of these other things. And one of the one of the things that they often talked about one, uh, was they said, "We have to educate our emotions. Mm -hmm. We have to educate our emotions." And because they knew <laughs> that when they went out. That they were going to be kicked, they were going to be punched, they were going to be yelled at, they were going to be screamed at. People were going to throw things at them. People were going to try to kill them. Right? Mm -hmm. um, they also they were very serious students of the New Testament. They were very serious students of the Sermon on the Mount. One of Martin Luther King's greatest sermons is called "Loving Your Enemies." Right? And and so they said we have to educate our emotions because the natural thing when somebody throws something at you right or somebody punches you there's a very natural way to act but they knew that was going to be counterproductive they knew the only way to achieve you know they were angry at the system of segregation they were yeah. angry at injustice but the only way that they were going to achieve reconciliation the only way that they were going to achieve the beloved community that Martin Luther King talked about is by transforming the dynamic by ed by not reacting in kind, but by educating their emotions in such a way that they could respond in a Christian manner. Uh, again, that did not reduce their anger at the injustice. They they right. were as, as dedicated as ever at overturning that, but they weren't going to let their emotions do as as you said, just this this kind of natural adrenaline laced thing. They had to educate their emotions. Yeah. And, and therapists today would call that emotional intelligence, right? Yeah. It, to be able to stop and think through and, and understand what you're, you're feeling. Um, well, there's something I really want to say about that. And it went away from me. Give me hang on. What was it? Uh, um, oh yeah. And, and, uh, and there's, there's a gospel principle. I want to be careful about how I say this because of the source and where it comes, but I, I think we can say this. It is within Satan's plan to take, we all have a natural uh, dislike of anger towards or enmity towards injustice. And it's his plan to take our enmity towards injustice, the anger we feel about things that are wrong, and turn it into creating more injustice, turn it into yep. creating more problems. That's Satan's plan. And that's what we need to stop. And I think that's what Nephi is realizing here. Like, okay, I, I, I can't be part of that. I can't participate in yeah. that. Yeah, you mentioned peacemaking. One of my favorite, there was a great mid-20th century Christian writer named A.J. Musta, who was involved in the, the peace movement. And he famously uh, coined a phrase that said, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Uh, uh, the, 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 we don't instrumentalize these Christian virtues. Like, um, uh, well, I really want to be loving. 
but it's really hard. So I got to do all these other things, right? To yeah. so that I end up on the other side with love. No, love is the way that you become loving, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, you, you know, uh, so you, you, you don't um, fight your way to peace. Uh, uh, right. uh, you don't anger your way to love uh, and to reconciliation. Uh, you you model those virtues. And I think that's exactly what Nephi, and again, in a very human way, every single one of us, right, can can relate to this. Yes. Um, but recognizing that his role in this, um, as you said, some some of you, you read some of his sermons to his brothers in in First Nephi, they're laced with that righteous indignation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe um uh, I don't want to psychoanalyze him too much, but I'm 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 taking this, you know, basically from his own words. There's there's a sense that like, could I have had some of those conversations differently? Could I have taught the same truths, right? Could I could I have delivered the same message, um, but maybe not been, um, you know, could, could could I have done it in a way that that it, that that anger wasn't part of 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 that. Um, yeah. So. And to some degree, that's the growth path we're all on. And that's what happens when you have young prophets, right? Like, again, I don't I don't want to put stuff into people's minds and words that I don't have any evidence for. But I would guess if you were to ask 40-year-old Joseph Smith if he could have taught uh, and handled a couple of situations when he was 30-year-old Joseph Smith a little differently, yeah. he probably would have said, yeah, yeah, I, I could have done that a little differently, right? And we need to allow him and Nephi that room for growth, just like we hope that they're allowing us some room for growth. Yeah, and and that's and and I think Nephi recognizes what's what's be- beautiful. Then you know maybe as we kind of uh, kind of think about the the overall message here is that he he's he knows he, he's so um, he's he's aware of these these challenges and and weaknesses that he has. He's aware of his humanity, yeah. right? And and he knows how's it going to get better is he's he's, he's going to turn to God. Yep. Right. And and so the last third or, or last, excuse me, the last quarter of the psalm, um, you know, starting in in verse thirty, um, yeah. Oh Lord, I'll praise Thee forever. I'll rejoice in Thee, the the Rock of my salvation. Lord, wilt Thou redeem my soul? Interesting textually, you know, Lehi's been talking about this, the redemption of the soul. Nephi asks this question: um, Will Thou redeem my soul? He's he's expressed trust in God. He's expressed a testimony of God's love, but it's not until the last chapter that Nephi writes, Second Nephi chapter thirty-three, that he testifies uh, uh, straight out that that God has redeemed his soul. Hmm. Right. So, so even that, there's, there's this, this kind of journey that, that Nephi is on. Uh, but, but and he, he equates he, that with rejoicing, right there in verse thirty, yeah. and then going to verse thirty-one. This is part of rejoicing. His ability to rejoice is because he knows that God can redeem. And then he's asking for that redemption, as you said. Yep. And so he, he quotes just, just beautiful, beautiful verses. Um, I love verse 33, mm-hmm. just the image, Oh Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? I immediately think of the prodigal son. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and then verse 34, I've trusted in thee. I will trust in thee forever. Right. The, for, for me, this is such a great model of discipleship. Of even when things are tough, right? Whether it again, whether it's mental illness, whether it's our own sin, our own weakness, and and so forth, that that we remain just anchored on that rock, right? Oh Lord, yeah. I've trusted in Thee. I will trust in Thee forever. 
Um, I'll continue to lift up my voice unto thee. I'll cry unto thee forever. This is this is just somebody who, uh, even in the midst of this kind of out emotional outpouring, he is solidly founded on uh, on the rock. Yeah, yeah, and 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 he has you know Nephi is so often about the choices he makes it so clear to us. You can choose this and uh, you know life and freedom and and peace or captivity and death. There are different ways he puts it, and he has it even right there. Where in verse 34, I've trusted in thee. And I want to highlight this because we're getting close to the Isaiah chapters. And so I hope my audience will, will keep these verses in mind because one of the major themes of these Isaiah chapters is that that Isaiah keeps putting this same choice before us. Who are you going to trust in? Right. Mm. So keep keep in mind this emotion that Nephi is feeling. And then he goes on to insert those Isaiah chapters. I think that there's a correlation there because note in verse 34. I have trusted in thee, I will trust in thee forever. And then three times he talks about the problem of trusting in the arm of flesh, right? He just, three times right in a row. I won't trust in flesh, curse to see that puts his trust in the arm of flesh, and then says again, curse to see that puts his trust in man or maketh flesh his arm. He is trying to make it really, really clear for us that his joy comes because of trusting in God and his ability to fight his brothers or anything else is not what's going to work. There's only one thing that's going to work. And so he puts this choice before us again so clearly. But the reason he's putting it before us is because he's come to understand it, right? In in his mind, he recognizes the choice. He knows what he's chosen. And even when it's tough, he's reaffirming that choice. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of hope here for, um, look, here. here's Nephi at the end of his life, thinking about this, right? knowing there's no reconciliation, knowing prophesying of the future, right? That it's not going to come. Um, think about this, you know, the sadness, the the melancholy that comes with that. And, and I think there are, there are a lot of people who have divided families, right? And, and families where people have made all kinds of different choices, hopefully not trying to kill each other, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but just where families where there is just kind of intractable conflict, and there's there's seemingly no way out, no way forward. And there, there are families that that's that's the way it, it, it there is no reconciliation in this life um, for, for a lot of families. And uh, and I think part of what Nephi is pointing us to is like we do the very best we can. Right. We, we, we do all that we can uh, to keep these these families together. Lehi and Sarai did all they could right to hold this family together. And as soon as they die. Um, it, it, you know, the, it, it all splits up. Um, but, but God has a plan, you know, a kind of long-term plan for the reconciliation of, of his family. Ultimately, that's of course, that that's what we're all a part of. We're all, you know, we have our own little branches of our own little families of, of the human family tree, but ultimately this is a story about God's family. And, and I think when Nephi is expressing here, even recognizing that his people, his branch, Right, it's not going to end well for them several hundred years later. But uh, again, you know this far better than I do. But I think this is why he cites all of the Isaiah chapters, all the stuff about restoration. Like mm -hmm. God is thinking, God is playing the long game, right? Yeah. And yeah. God's restoration goes way beyond any part of our own little family trees. And if we can put trust in God, He will restore His people. Uh, that's beautiful, and I, th I think. Nephi has bridged that gap in this psalm. He's bridging that gap where he has seen his people. First of all, they're part of the scattering, but then they fail. And they're going to, but a remnant, he knows a remnant stays. So they are going to need to be gathered. So he he absolutely is trusting that. And I think you're right. That's part of why he's turning Isaiah and so on. 
but he seems to be taking that and and putting it into his own life in this psalm. Like, well, yeah. there are some things that have separated me from God. I'm yep. sc- scattered from God, but I trust that God will gather me back to him. And and I think that's kind of what we see is is in the psalm, the things that he knows separating him from God and the things that he knows, which is Christ, that will bring him to God. Exactly. So I love that. So we, we always see this throughout scripture, but Nephi is a great example of this, of the macro and the micro. It's it's both happening all at the same time. This big, huge story of salvation, right? Yeah. And the way that plays out in your life, in yes. my life, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I could talk about the scattering in my heart. I, yep. I could t- I could talk about you know the remnants in my heart that that, that are still there, right? Yeah. And and I can talk about the redemption, the redeeming work, the 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 that God is doing in my life, even while He's doing it over the, the the space of thousands of years for billions of of his children yep it's beautiful isn't it yeah yeah well so that's what i got <laughs> that's, that's great well th- thank you that's that's beautiful stuff i mean it's it's uplifting to me and it helps me think things through and and it's made it very real for me right we've we've taken this and said this is what it looks like in our lives and in the lives of other people and i appreciate your helping us do that thank you so much for that yeah, um, my pleasure it's just such a great text it is, and and I love the way that you have uh, wound together your your understanding of it and your testimony. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, we want to to also encourage our audience to, if you've learned something from this, to share it with other people. Either talk to them about it, or tell them about the podcast, or share it on your social media or whatever, and download and rate and review and all those things that will help more people access it so they can learn from Patrick as well. And we'll encourage you to listen to that other episode this week with uh, John Tanner. And then just tell you about the the fabulous week we have lined up for next week. Uh, we have uh, Andrew Skinner as we go into the fantastic sermon that uh, Jacob gives us in 2 Nephi 6 or 10. And Andrew Skinner is going to go through that in his typical beautiful and powerful way. And then we have, I think, a really fun interview with Dan Debenham, who is from Relative Race, as he and I talk about the idea of being cut off from God is like being cut off from family and, and his role in helping families get reunited and the miracles he's seen in that and the way that that can teach us about our need to be reunited with God. Uh, that's a, a discussion that uh, was inspired by as I was writing my book that's coming out for Easter and, and uh, Relative Race really kind of uh, helped me key in on some things I talked about the atoning sacrifice. So that that spurred uh, Dan and I into having this conversation. I think that you'll all enjoy that as well. So we'd encourage you to, to come back next week and to bring a friend and, and hopefully we're all edified together like I just was with Patrick. So thank you again, Patrick. My pleasure. Thanks, Gary.